knows how to work in us. Isn't that amazing that we don't just fall into a category and he just treats us all the same, but every single one of us he treats as his child. I've been blessed with, well, not I, my wife and I have been blessed with 10 uh, of our own children, no twins, no adopted, they're all ours, and, uh, and um, no, you're a clap, clappy bunch this morning, you're making this easy. <laughs> she does look like she's 20. I mean, I know, I mean, I need readers, I need readers to see my phone now, but still, I think she definitely looks 20, even with the readers on. <laughs> but no two of my children are even close to the same. There's similarities, but I would never dream of just saying, well, I have 10, they're all kind of in an envelope somewhere, and I just got my 10. It's not how it works. If you're a parent with just one child, two, they're so different, This not just age, maturity, there's just, as a person, they're just unique to themselves. And what touches one's heart, what means something to one might not mean much to another one. And I just want to encourage you this morning, as we were in class this morning, for those that still aren't taking advantage of the, of the 9 o'clock classes, um, just keep mentioning that they're here. Uh, they're powerful. The revelation of where God's child began at that class this morning and uh, it was just powerful to hear people who have been saved 50 years and just within the past five, they're discovering this reality that I'm not just a Christian. I'm not just in an envelope with an identity tag that the world says, oh, they're just one of those born-againers. I'm a child of my heavenly father. <laughs> I've been brought into a family which Jesus Christ is the eldest brother in. And it's a beautiful thing to, to, to just know that God sees us individually. He has plans for our lives individually. And uh, there are certain principles and themes that are consistent in his heart, absolutely. But at the end of the day, we're his children. And in moments of worship like that, I just, I can sense that he desires more and more to connect with my life individually, not just a pastor of a church, which is supposed to look a certain way, but I'm Joshua Ortman, son of God. And you put your name in there because that's who you are too. It's your name, son or daughter of the one true living God. And it just gives life such a different flavor and, and, and focus when you realize you're noticed by the one who created all that we can see. Amen. And he's not just putting up with you. He actually has a great plan for your life and he loves you Amen. to the degree that we see evidenced on the cross. You can't love someone much more than to give your life for them. And that's what he does for us and did for us and continues to call us into that walking out of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our lives. And so I'm just grateful for today. I'm grateful for feeling like my feet are back on the ground here. And it's good to see so many faces this morning. I know the Lord's doing a work uh, in us individually, but he's also doing a work in us as a, as a body of Christ. Uh, who's just touched by the children this morning? And could you hear their voices just singing almost over the top of us? It's just so powerful. A lot of work goes into that. Kids get here at 9 o'clock. That means parents get here at 9 o'clock to bring them, too. <laughs> uh, they don't drive themselves yet, thankfully. And, um, but the training and the equipping in the area of worship and praise and to understand at a young age that there is a response we have to the depressive tone and culture of this world. And it's not to try to combat it with like uh, language. It's to just go above it and just say, we're just going to praise Jesus. 
from that place, the details get figured out. The stuff that needs to seemingly be put together gets put together, but not as we focus on it, but as we focus on him. Seek first the kingdom and all the things that can tangle our lives up. This all just dealt with. He adds those things to us and he sorts them out if we'll keep our affection and our eyes on him. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's the answer. When we're looking at him, it's amazing what we can endure and what we can come through. And not just limping, but in victory. In absolute victory. And so I just, I know we've been looking into Peter and talking about the word of God. And uh, I just, as I considered an aspect of Peter, just I'm, I'm reading, I don't feel it's time yet to just kind of go verse through verse through first and second Peter, which we will. So if you want to uh, have a little peek ahead of what will soon transpire, go ahead and do that. And hopefully it'll raise some questions for you and you'll have some challenges that you can't quite get your, maybe your mind around, your gray matter. But the mind of Christ is not intimidated by those. Those are the, those are the words that Peter were give, was given to be able to feed the sheep. And uh, they're powerful, they're challenging, they, they cause us to realize there's a life we're called to live that we can't do it in the natural, it has to be done by the Spirit. Amen. And the sooner we can come to that position and stop trying in our own strength to achieve something that Jesus already achieved in the Spirit, <laughs> the first way of doing life is very tiring and fatiguing. The second way is just beautiful because you realize he's done it. Amen. And he said, here you go, now walk yeah. in the shoes that I've given you to walk in. And so we've been looking at that, but one of the aspects of Peter, and one of the most famous moments of his life, um, dovetails with something that I just felt called to dig into this week in the, in the Word of God. And uh, Peter, if you remember, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden after they'd been praying and all that, there was a moment where they're taking Jesus, and it's just too much for Peter. He's like, okay, he's not going to fight for himself, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a coward. I'm going to do something about this. And he pulls his sword out. In case you think Jesus has a problem with self-defense, he clearly doesn't. Peter was with him his whole ministry, and he never said, Peter, leave that thing at home. No, there was a need to defend not just people, but animals and different things in those days. And so Jesus is not a pacifist, in case you're confused. But in that moment, it was not the fulfillment of God's plan for Peter to pull his sword out. The timing was wrong. Was wrong. It was not the moment for that. And so he pulls it out, and he strikes one of the, one of the soldiers, cuts their ear off, and Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't going to be handled this way. Put that away. He rebukes Peter. And Peter's just in this state of being stunned. And I think it just violated everything about what Peter thought he knew Jesus and what his role was in serving Jesus. He thought he had it all sorted and he would know what to do when the time came. And that was his way of saying, I'm with you to the end. Because by doing that against a squad of Roman soldiers, I mean, it was guaranteed. He, I mean, if Jesus hadn't put the ear back on the guy and the guy, it was a miracle that happened, I'm sure Peter would have been grabbed and probably treated worse than Jesus was. Because you don't assault a Roman soldier. You just didn't do that, especially if you were Jewish. That was a bad idea from the, in every way. So Peter thinks he's doing something amazing. Jesus corrects him and says, not time for that. And Peter goes into this really bizarre, we read through the next bit of the story of Christ's trial, his torture, his crucifixion. And, and Peter's all over the place. He's found in one moment to, he's only one of two that's recorded who actually went with Jesus. So even though he was caught off guard, he still had it in him to want to see what was going to happen to Jesus. He was his Lord and Savior. He believed he was the Son of God. Peter had that revelation, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, you're the only one that we can come to for eternal life. And so he was still, there was still a magnetism there to see what happened to Jesus. But when the pressure came and they started saying, hey, this guy was with, with those, that little rowdy band in the, in the garden that, you know, we almost had an altercation with and all this stuff went wrong. They, they would have he was being, beginning to be identified as that, and he suddenly begins to deny that he even knows Jesus. 
In fact, he actually uses curse words to kind of make it clear, like, if I was with him, you think I'd be cursing right now? And so it says that he, he actually, he just went back to his old self. He went back to the fisherman. He went back to this place. And what was it that shook him so deeply to the core of who he was that he's three years ministering, you know, serving 5,000, carrying um, the power of God to heal and to raise the dead and to go into the villages and do the things Jesus did. He'd, he'd been training them uh, in ministry. Having handled all that, there's a moment in time when, because Everything shifted in what he thought he knew. He suddenly lost his courage. And he begins to deny the very one that he swore and promised. I'll never leave you. I'll be with you to the end. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's a great thought. But the reality is before the rooster crows this morning three times, you're going to, you know, I mean, before he crows, you'll deny me three times. And so I, as I pondered that, I, I was drawn to this idea of armor bearer. And it's, it's a thought that started actually just within the last two weeks. And so I want to consider this because I went straight to 1 Samuel, and I'm just, I'm open to my entire reality of what I think I know about whatever it is to be open to the Holy Spirit. Are we so well trained? Are we so dogmatic? Are we so well versed in this thing called Christian living that we've now got it and we've stopped learning? I'm telling you, it's a dangerous place to be because people will want you to have the answer to everything. And so sometimes we can fake this idea that, oh, yeah, I know. I know. Ask me whatever you want. I'll give you the right answer. It's okay sometimes to say, well, I know to a point, but there are certain things I'm still having to just trust him to finish revealing to me when he's ready to because they just don't compute yet here. By faith, I can lay hold of them, absolutely. But when I look around and I measure the results of what my faith is supposed to produce, I'm seeing that there's somewhat of a disconnect. And that's just life in an atmosphere where there's an accuser of the brethren and there's hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, prince and power of the air. There's all this contamination in, this, in, in the, in the uh, frequencies that are trying to communicate with us. But as I began to look into, into 1 Samuel, I looked at chapter 14, and this, was, this started to just build to me when uh, Pastor Rich and Diane shared this message, I think it was two or three weeks ago during the Bible study upstairs here at 9 o'clock, and it's the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. It's, it's, it's in chapter 14. I mean, if I try to abbreviate it, I'm liable to take longer. So let me just read verses 6 through 16. It's a powerful story. And for those trying to title this message, I have no idea what you're going to call it. Because it's a little bit of just going around and looking at some of these, these stories. Because I love stories. And just gleaning some things from them. And hopefully we can make a strong point at the end. But in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel in verse 6, and the story begins before it and it goes after it, but this is just a little piece of it. This, this is before chapter 17, which is David and Goliath's story. Most everybody knows David and Goliath, right? So this is, be, this is previous to that. Again, it's the Philistines. They're already kind of camped up against Israel, and uh, as they seem to have a knack for doing. And uh, they're kind of on lockdown. So let's read it in verse 6, chapter 14, 1 Samuel. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor. Again, it's a story of someone who fought alongside his champion, his warrior, his leader. Jonathan was the king's son. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Amazing that Jonathan eventually and David become best friends. They even make an oath together. They are as if they were blood brothers because they have this same fighting spirit within them. Not trying to prove anything, but just trying to do something with this urgency that they were feeling in these moments where it seemed like the whole nation's 
we're at pause, waiting for someone to do something. And he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the same thing David recognizes about Goliath, that he doesn't have a covenant, he's uncircumcised, he's outside of the promise of God. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. He's just, they're just pondering. He's not like, oh, I had a vision, I had a dream, this is what we got to do. He's, he doesn't have all the details yet, but he's like, we've got to do something. We're just standing out here, he's young, he's got this, this zeal for his nation, Let's see, maybe the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving, by many or by few. Talk about a little nugget to extract from this. If you don't get anything else today, recognize something. God will do a mighty work on planet Earth before Jesus returns and as Jesus returns. And it may not be by many, it may be by few, but the work will be glorious. The work will be glorious. The world may not recognize it. They may just turn the cameras away from it. That's okay. It's their loss, unfortunately. But there will be a mighty move of God's power and demonstration of his ability to fight on behalf of the righteous, perhaps as if we've, that, like we've never seen before. And it won't be because of the number that's assembled on his side. It'll be because of the heart that he places within them. And so David's, this is the cool part. David's armor bearer says in response, I mean, imagine being the armor bearer. Here's this, he's the king's son, of course, he's, you know, he's got the throne on the horizon, and he's all this, and here he's like, hey, let the two of us go up there and just take on this garrison, did I just, yeah, the garrison, I said that already, yeah, the garrison, which is a, a troop, it's a group of Philistines, turns out to be 20, as we'll read in a minute, and we're just going to go up there and just do this crazy thing. I mean, if you're not committed to the person that has that, that idea, you're just going to say, yeah, that's a great idea, why don't we go run it by your dad? Let's go run it by the, the other mighty warriors in the land. See if we can at least get a couple more to come with us. He says, this is, listen to what he says. Do all, the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. So then Jonathan said, so it's so important. If you don't have someone in the trench with you and interceding for you and watching your back, it's a good time to find someone like that. It could be, could be your spouse, that's awesome when that works out and you have a great marriage, but it could be just a brother or a sister in the Lord that you have that understanding with. Hey, when I need someone to come together and get something done, I've got that. So then Jonathan, Jonathan said, okay, very well. Let us cross over to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say thus to us, quote, wait until we come down to you. Then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we're going to go up there. That'll be the sign that the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And listen to what the Philistines said. They said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. Isn't that something? The enemy, by just coming in and getting close and not being evicted and chased away by the Israelites, was proof enough to them that they were cowards. And they called them out on it. They go, oh, look, they're finally crawling out from under the holes they've been hiding in. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they said, come up to us, and we'll show you something. <laughs> I wish I knew the, like, the real language, because I'm sure it's probably... R-rated, whatever they said to them. It wasn't just like, come on up, guys, we're going to show you something. It was probably very vulgar and very, the idea was, yeah, come on up here. You want to see something? Yeah, come on. And um, so that was their sign, though, right? That's what they said. If, if this happens this way, then we're going to know the Lord is, is ready to fight for us. 
Okay, so then Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his knees with his armor bearer after him, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan. And as he came after them, his armor bearer killed them. (laughs) This is a real champion. He's out in front. He's like, okay, we're going to do this. He has the vision for it. He goes and he's out there. He's knocking down Philistines. His armor bearer is coming behind him. See, the armor bearer was supposed to go out in front. He was supposed to protect his champion from arrows and whatever was going to come flying at the person he was serving. He was the king's son. The armor bearer is just someone picked from the army that probably was an excellent soldier. And he was just given this role of, you're, you're the one to make sure that my son stays intact. So here it is, Jonathan's knocking them down. He's not even pausing long enough to, to finish them off. The armor bearer's coming behind him and just finishing the job. And it says, he says, The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp. 20 guys. The Philistine army was massive. But here's two guys doing damage to 20 of the best guys who were left to kind of guard this passage between these two big rocks. And it says that there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Now listen to this. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked. That had to be a cool moment right there for the armor bearer and Jonathan. Like, if they weren't sure that that little phrase, come on up here, was the sign that God was fighting for them, all of a sudden you kill 20 people and, and everyone else is just trembling. And even the earth begins to tremble under the, the gravity of what's happening in that moment. It's a powerful moment with two people, right? The garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. It wasn't just like a, oh, did you feel that? I think the earth just trembled. It says it was a great trembling. It means rocks were probably moving, trees were shaking. It was known that the earth is quaking under the, the weight and the significance of this event that's happening right then and right there. It was a very great trembling. Now the watchman of Saul, Jonathan's dad, and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they fled here and there. What a powerful story. You could preach that from so many different angles, but I don't want to stay there. I want to consider another pair of folks. This story also involves an armor bearer, and it's a, it's a, it's a part of this story that I hadn't considered. It's in, I can't go there and read through it. We're going to be out of time before we know it. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's, the, it's three chapters after this amazing battle happens that goes on to Israel, routes the Philistines, drives them away, and yet in chapter 17, they're back camped again with Goliath coming out and running his big mouth. And Israel, once again, is all sitting down in their their fear, their posture of just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And there's, there's something so powerful to see in that, and that is this. For a believer, one who has a covenant, the light of Christ is shown upon our life. For us to do nothing is a sign to the enemy of fear. We don't have to run away. We just have to not act on what we know we've been given. And for him, it's victory. 
and he will run a big mouth and he will do whatever he can and he will try to beat the drum to make sure that he maintains that sense of fear. But there was never a threat from the Philistines like, we're coming over and taking you guys out. It was never that. It's like, hey guys, send somebody over here so that I can beat him over here in the valley. And if I win, then you're just going to voluntarily become our servants. There was this whole architecture of a deal that had to be made up because the enemy was afraid. He knew they had a covenant with the two guys just had made the earth shake when they tackled one of their garrisons three chapters before. They understood that these people had something special with the creator of the world, that somehow the earth would shake when they had victory. Like there was this weird, there was a lot of superstition then. They had many gods. The Philistines had tons and tons of gods. Dagon was their high god, but they worshiped all kinds of things, idols and statues and people. And they sacrificed accordingly to, to these things. And so they knew that this group of people was something special, and they were timid. But all they had to do is feel like they could keep them from attacking, and they were winning. And they were right. They were dead right. And so in this story, in, 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 it's the story of David and Goliath. But as I read through it, actually a thought came to me. And I don't, I don't know what it was, just my brain maybe. But it said, what happened to Goliath's shield bearer? I thought, Every drawing I've ever seen of David and Goliath is David, little guy, and Goliath, this big, with this massive armor that 17 explains how much it weighed and how long it was, and, and it, you know, a man couldn't even lift it, a normal person couldn't even move it. It was like he was a giant. Some say minimum of nine feet. Many scholars say uh, the Anakim were 11 plus feet tall. And so can you imagine that, that mass of, of humanity trained in war from youth, ready to do battle, ready to stand and take on whoever the Israelite army was going to send to him. He was a formidable presence, and when you're telling the story, you don't really need it to add anything else to it. It's just this giant and David. And yet, when you read through the text, it says there was an armor bearer that went out before him. Maybe I better read some of this, because if I don't, I'm liable to take longer to tell the story. I'm learning this about myself, in case you think I'm not still... Let's just go to 1 Samuel 17. Sometimes a story read is better than a story told, and sometimes it's the other way around. <laughs> Let's start in verse 4, 1 Samuel 17. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. If you're all that impressive and you're that huge and big and amazing, 11 feet, 9, 9 feet, let's just stick with 9, okay, let's go low. I mean, what the heck do you need somebody to stand there with a piece of metal and protect you for? Against a little kid with a, with, a, with a staff and a leather strap and some rocks in his pocket. And yet we see this. We see that the shield bearer comes out in front of Goliath. So when David takes on Goliath, and it says he runs at him and he does what he does, he's not just taking on Goliath. He's taking on Goliath hiding behind a giant. And back then the armor bearer would carry a, a shield that went pretty much from the ground to the top. It was, a, it was called a long shield. It was something long so that if the... You know, the army just decided, maybe Israel decided, okay, we're going to throw a thousand arrows and hope one of them gets through. Ding, 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 ding. Then, you know, the arrows are wasted. So it, was that kind of a, it was that kind of a thing. He was, he was there to protect from an unexpected assault. We know the story. He failed at that. The one job he had to do, he clearly didn't do because we know what happens. David ends up 
finding a way to get a rock past all this, past the distraction of the shield, past, you know, under the helmet, which was on his forehead, just in the perfect spot, he gets a rock to hit Goliath in the forehead hard enough to knock him to the ground. But then I felt the question come to me, well, what happened to the armor bearer? Because why doesn't it say that David killed him too? See ya. Had to be. Goliath comes out with his shield bearer. Goliath falls down. The champion of Gath falls down. Probably the second best fighting warrior in, in, the, in the Philistine army, assigned to their champion, picks up his feet and begins to run the other way. It had to be that way. I mean, what else? I don't know, unless there's somebody that wants to run scenarios and, fi and figure this out more deeply. And I'll tell you what happened. The same thing that happened to the Philistines when Jonathan and his armor bearer went over the hill. The fear shifted. The fear that paralyzed Israel shifted in a moment. In the thud of a stone on a forehead, all the fear that bound one nation now consumed the other nation. And if you read on and you follow the story, it's exactly what happened. They began to flee and began to fight themselves. When people begin to bicker and bite and fight against one another, especially in the body, it's just fear at work in their hearts. It's just fear. They're afraid of something. They're afraid of correction. They're afraid of being held to the truth of the standard of God's word. They're afraid of something, sometimes deeply afraid, and they don't know how to process it. And so they just begin to fight among themselves. It's the mark of the devil at work. The fear jumps from the nation. And the crazy thing about all this is probably where I want to emphasize this. So I just basically told the story. We didn't have to read through it. That was the high point that I wanted to get through. Think about the history of David to that point. If you go back previously in 1 Samuel, you discover that he was once Saul's armor bearer. Think about it. The champion Goliath falls and hits the ground. His armor bearer, not like Jonathan's armor bearer. He's not a part of the battle. He's not there because any other reason than they told us, you know, this guy's invincible. He can never fall. He falls all of a sudden. The fear jumps off of Israel and jumps upon the whole nation. He's gone. I mean, he still would have been 10 times, five, six times David's size. He could have easily handled David in that moment. Meanwhile, we know David goes and takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off with Goliath's own sword because David didn't have one. Where was the armor bearer? He, what, he, had, he, had, he had access to all Goliaths. He could, have, he could have taken Goliath's sword and said, oh, yeah, now you got to deal with me. And tried to prove himself or something. No, fear is, is an incredible thing where people just flee. Even though they're, they're, they have the power to stand, they run because it's a spirit. And it can move and it can shift and it can jump around. That's the danger of the spirit of fear. But David was Saul's armor bearer. So he was trained in this. He knew what the armor bearer was supposed to do. He probably had an understanding of how to get the stone past him. It says he ran at him. I think in that there was some strategy involved. He needed to, get, he needed to close the distance. He needed someone to shift, someone to move. Maybe he ran to the side to get the stone past this big shield that's standing in front of Goliath. I don't know. But he was a trained armor bearer. And guess what happened to David? He's out there without one. Where's David's armor bearer? He was the armor bearer. And now he's on the battlefield. Think about it for a minute. Who was his champion? Saul. 
prophetically Jesus. Good job, John. I heard you. The Lord heard you. You had the right answer. You still got a check for that. Not a gold star. One of those little, little, the little blue stars probably. His champion, where was he? He was still sitting on the throne of Israel. It might as well have just been a comfy chair. There was no great military strategy being put out there from the throne. He sat on the throne, but he was a fallen champion. Just previous, they had routed the Philistines. They took, when Saul realized that they were all running, they called the army, they went and they routed them. And Saul got the credit for the victory. Now here he's sitting back on the throne again, but it's just a place to hide out because when when Goliath would come out and said all of Israel, including the mighty men, they would tremble in fear. David shows up on the scene and is like, you know, I'll carry your sword, I'll carry it, we'll go out into battle, but the champion was sitting down, he wasn't doing anything. David said, this is the craziest thing, David says, is there not a cause in Israel? Is there not a cause? Is this uncircumcised Philistine really able to paralyze us because We've lost sight of the cause for the covenant that which we were called, that the God who led us through the Red Sea, the God who fed us in the wilderness, the God who put water into a rock so that we could all drink, the God who sent manna and quail and all these things, did he somehow not just suddenly give up on us? We have a covenant with him. His covenants are for a thousand generations. They never end. What happened? He's uncircumcised. He cursed God. He needs to die. Where's, why is everybody sitting down? He couldn't understand it. And so an armor bearer goes out in front of His champion, because his champion had fallen, only not physically dead, but to fear. David goes flying out there, does what he does. Israel follows, routes the Philistines once again. If you read on through the story of Israel and the Philistines, they come back. There's more battles, there's more war, there's more the Ark of the Covenant getting stolen, and there's all, it's a continuous thing. But battle by battle, if we don't act and if we just sit down, the enemy perceives it and he's right. It's been said, if good people do nothing, evil will always win. That's all it takes for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. Why? Because it's a dereliction of duty. We've been put here to shine a light. We've been put here to be the safeguard against evil invading the camp of the righteous. Intimidation is a big part of it. They knew, it's amazing to me, they knew exactly how much all his armor weighed. The historians went through because David grabbed it all. He took it all and put it in his tent. This became part of Israel's treasury. Like, oh, this is the Goliath's head. He brought his head back to Saul. He brings back his helmet. His, he brings back all his stuff, and it becomes part of Israel's heritage. Like, look what God did for us. Because David flat out told Goliath when he charged him, he's like, you come at me with sword and a spear. I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord. And so there's the next question in this story. Did David, as an armor bearer, really go alone? Clearly, he did not go alone. From everyone looking on, they just saw a little shepherd boy out there with a strap of leather and some stones. But guess what? He wasn't alone. And guess what else? He knew he wasn't alone. Because he didn't say, you got your shield bearer, you got all this prop, you got all this stuff. I got... What, myself? No, he didn't brag about himself. He didn't say, you have a disadvantage. He's like, no, I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord. The Lord God of hosts, who's going to this day give you to my hand. He told him everything he's going to do to him. He said, I'm going to take off your head. I'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air. 
And then he goes ahead and does it. Why? Because he wasn't alone. When his champion in the natural falls, guess what he does? He relies on someone he had met in a wilderness long ago where there were no other people. There was no champion to help him with the bear and the lion with the sheep. There was just his faith in this creator. And I believe this is why Jesus is called the son of David. Because there was something in David that he knew how to find the alone place where all he needed was that connection to the one who is the creator. Not just a champion. He's the one who made it all. And he knew that place well. And so when the time came to face fear, he just with one act put all the fear on this nation onto the nation where it belongs. And they all just flee. It's a beautiful story. But I just, I'm considering it and I'm processing it. Clearly it's not completely developed. But the idea of... I think we all trust in a lot of, we have a lot of different champions in the West. I think you could name a a political group, you could name a political figure. I mean, for kids sometimes, it's just as simple as a sports hero. It's a musician, it's someone that they would say, well, they idolize them, they're the American idol, (laughs) right? We have these systems in place to try to draw that out of people, that there are champions, and it's amazing you watch your best author, the best televangelist that ever was, and then all of a sudden they fall morally, and it's like a whole group of people just melt away. Why? Because the champion fell. It just proves that they didn't actually have a personal connection to the one who was supposed to fuel them forward, regardless of what their earthly champion did or didn't do. It's important to get these things. I want to be in a place where no matter what happens in this earth, whatever systems of this world I'm putting my trust in, that when they collapse, that there's not even a hiccup in my life. That there's just, okay, Lord, we knew this was coming. Now it's time. It's time to go and do with just you and me what only you and me can do. And if every believer has that inside themselves, I'm telling you, marriages will change. Broken relationships will be mended. People's lives will transform. Jobs will be transformed. Miserable jobs can become amazing jobs because you just decide to turn the light on there. I've seen it too many times to think that we're just supposed to sit on the hill and wait, wait, wait for the enemy to be quiet. He's never going to shut up. He has to be shut up. <laughs> David did not go alone. He understood that there was a cause. There was a covenant. I want to read Psalm 35 because as I began to just dig through this this week, this I can't prove this, but in my mind, imagine he had some time before he went to Saul and said, hey, somebody's got to do something about this guy. There were hours that passed. There was all this time before he actually went onto the battlefield. There was plenty of time for him to scribble a few things down. What if this is what he wrote in Psalm 35? It is a Psalm of David, in case you're wondering. Psalm 35, verse 1. He's only supposed to be an accessory to the champion. Meanwhile, he becomes the frontline guy. I think it's beautiful. Probably he's the only one that knew how to deal with Goliath's armor bearer. He says, oh, Lord, oppose those who oppose me. Just picture him like taking a moment before he goes with, maybe he's down to the creek picking his rocks, okay? Maybe he's finding those five smooth stones. Just imagine. Imagine this is what he's saying. Maybe he memorized it. Maybe he wrote a song to it in his mind and he was singing this. Maybe he didn't have time to write it down. I don't know. But imagine these are his words in that moment. Fight those who fight against me. He says, put on your armor. He's talking to God. What kind of a relationship does this guy have with the Lord who made him? What was forged in that wilderness with those sheep that allows this depth of conversation to the one he's about to put his life on the line for? He says, Lord, put on your armor and take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear 
and your javelin against those who pursue me. Let me hear you say, I will give you victory. I believe he already heard that before he went out because that's how he could accurately prophesy to Goliath what he was going to do to him. I think God, because the Lord went with him. This little kid can't take down the two strongest men in the Philistine army with a piece of leather and some rocks. It took God going out. And it says, as it, as it continues on, listen, it says, bring shame and disgrace on those trying to kill me. Turn them back and humiliate those who want to harm me. Blow them away like the chaff in the wind. A wind sent by the angel of the Lord. Make their path dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. It's exactly what happened to the Philistines that day. The wind of the Lord came. That armor bearer for all his might and everything he could have picked up off of Goliath's dead body meant nothing to him. All he knew was run. Run. Because the wind of the Lord was sent by the angel and it just blew them clean out of the valley. I want to encourage us this morning. I believe the Lord wants to encourage us this morning. Just because those who are fighting alongside of us are invisible does not mean they're not powerful. Man looks to sword and spear. David said, don't look at what I'm coming at you with. Goliath's like, you're like a dog with a stick. You know, like, what, what, what is this? He says, I'm not coming at you with what's in my hand. I'm coming at you in the name of someone who gave me a cause. And there is a cause in Israel, and it's for the enemy and fear to be driven out. God stands with the one who stands for the cause. Jesus says this in John 18 when he's in a moment He'd already been partially tortured. They'd already brutalized him during his arrest. And in John 18, 37, he says this when he's standing before Pilate. Because Pilate asks him a question. He says unto Jesus, art thou a king then? And Jesus answered. Says, this is King James, in case you're wondering. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, and everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Paul in Ephesians 3, 1 says this, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heroes of our faith acted because there was a cause. Jesus only went through what Jesus went through because the Father had shown him there's a cause, son. There's a cause. I must have relationship restored to those who've become my enemies. And Peter had a hard time understanding it. It threw him into oblivion. He runs out, goes back to his old ways. He's out fishing. He's out trying to figure out life without Jesus because his champion had fallen. And yet what happens when the risen champion comes back and makes him breakfast on the beach? What happens to Peter? He's so undone. Like Paul, he ends up in prison. Like Paul, he's about to be executed. He talks about, I'm about to put off this tent. He knows his time is short because he's been captured. He's been led to where he doesn't want to go, clothed by those who didn't want to wear their clothes. And yet he knows this reality. There is a cause And for the cause that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse, we then submit our lives to the cause, which is Christ. And for this purpose, this cause, Christ was revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. 
Well, I don't know why Jesus had to come. To destroy the works of the evil one. His main work, fear. Fear. Hebrews reveals it so clearly that all their lifetime they were subject to bondage because of the fear of death. Alive, heart beating, but like Saul sitting in a throne thinking it's just a lazy chair because there's no passion and zeal left to go out and actually be willing to lay a life down. The cause has to override who it is that we're following. It has to override our expectations being disappointed. It has to supersede what people may think or not think about the reality of our life. It has to. The cause is what drew Jesus. When he had everything he could have said to Pilate, he just said this. There was a cause determined before I arrived here, and that's why I'm here. The point of whether I'm a king now or not isn't even the point. The point is there's a cause. And for this purpose, I will submit to the thing that's in front of me to submit to. When Peter realized the full scope of it, he realizes, okay, that was just temporary. My champion is back. He lays his life down for him. Peter then, from that point, he's free to run out in the front of the battle. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes out and preaches. He could have just as easily been stoned that day as applauded. Stephen preached the same message just four chapters later, and he gets stoned. It says the people were cut to the heart, and they stoned him. When Peter preaches, it says the people were cut to the heart, and they repented. I don't know what it all means. I just know that Peter was willing for no matter what was going to happen. There's a cause. There's some reason not to sit in an upper room and just enjoy the vibrations of this fun thing called fellowship with the Holy Spirit. There's a need to go out and tell people. And to shine a light that's brighter than just the one we feel like we're qualified to do. We have the qualification to shine the light of Christ. It's not you that you're giving away. It's the light that he places within you. David didn't go against Goliath with his cleverness. He went with the Lord of hosts on his side who was promised to deliver him into his hand. I'm glad you're still clappy. You started clappy, but I didn't know if you'd finish that way. This stuff's intense to me because if you're just, if you live in a bubble and your life's so great that you're not fighting any battles, then I'd probably like to get some pointers from you. I'll bring my notepad and everything. I would love to know how you're doing it. I think we're all in this together, aren't we? Aren't we all dealing with stuff that just needs to shift, needs to change voices that need to be silenced or disregarded or just superseded with the truth of what Jesus says and what his word says? There is a cause in Israel. There is a cause on planet Earth right now. It's called the church. It's the very essence, the entity that he said he's going to come back for. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all stand together. Father, I thank you that right now, you stand with us. If you reveal yourself as the lifter of our head, that, Lord, we're not here to run out in front of you and get in front of what you're trying to do, but you promise that you go with us. And that when we lift up our voice and your words come out of our mouth, that they are the words of God, not just the words of men and women. But your words that have power to change. Nations, families, individuals, situations, conditions. 
Lord, I thank you that the battle that's won at the cross 2,000 years ago, where you hung there alone and you even cried out, Father, Lord, why have you forsaken me? That in that moment, even you had to experience what it was to truly rely on all that you knew to be true. That the cause within your heart, Jesus, was greater than the pain of the moment, the loneliness of the moment, the rejection of that moment when heaven looked away as a perfect man took on the sin of the world. Not because he had to, but because there was a cause. There was a purpose so that the lies could be broken, so that the darkness could be lifted and destroyed by the light and the glory of your appearing. Lord, today we thank you that your word brings light to dark places, that your word lights our path, that your word shines as a light in a dark place, even prophetic, positive words of the future that aren't limited by what the world thinks is possible, but by what you say the cause is worthy of. Lord, we thank you that you did not shrink back, but you went the distance. And Lord, you've called us of the same spirit, that we are not those who shrink back to perdition and to destruction and to fear, but we are those who believe and we move forward and we are saved. Because Lord, you don't save by many. You can save by few. You can go with an individual who feels alone and yet they're not. Lord, make us aware, I pray, that your spirit abiding in us, your angels that surround our life, the messengers of heaven that guard over your bride to bring her through this time on earth, that, Lord, we're not alone. And though our, our support system may be invisible to this world, Lord, we know that it's not invisible to the enemy. The real enemy sees and knows and has reason to flee. Because <laughs> greater is he who is with us and in us than he who is with and who is in this world. Lord, you've shown it time and time again. You've made yourself so faithful to us. You've been so, so, so good, so kind to us, Jesus. There's no shadow of turning in you, Jesus. Lord, help us not to see you through the lens of our own insecurity, our own fickleness, our own shiftiness, our own lack of just being steady in facing you. But Lord, you don't, you're not affected by those things. You are the same yesterday, today, forever. You are the Lord and you don't change. Lord, help us to see that you are the anchor we can cling to. That hope in you goes beyond the fruit, just the, the, the foolishness and the frustration of this life. Lord, we cling to the eternal this morning. We set our eyes on you, our affections on you. Because where you are, there's fullness of joy, there's light, there's peace. There's no sun and there's no moon. There's just you. You are the light, Lord, of our lives and of our hearts. And we thank you for that, that you would go with us now. Illuminate us. May we be a light this week, this day, to those who would cross our path. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. If there's anyone this morning, thank you, Jesus. There's anyone this morning, you need a touch from the Lord. You need a, just a moment with Jesus. Why don't you come to the front? His presence is so strong right now. Just come to the front. Let the Lord touch you, minister to you, and bless you.
Greet someone, especially if you see someone you don't recognize, go ahead and say hello.